um, thank you guys for joining us today. Happy Friday to everyone. Um, so we're very fortunate to have Matt Chirpek here with us. Um, he's joining us uh, from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, Matt is pulmonary and critical care trained, um, and he is an expert in uh, the use of big data and machine-based learning. I'm very happy to have Matt here today talking about using big data to detect and prevent clinical deterioration. So without further ado, Matt, uh, go ahead and take it away. Great. Um, thanks again for inviting me to speak today, and thank you all for, for coming. Uh, so these are my disclosures, which include some research funding, and also the University of Chicago has a uh, patent pending for the prediction algorithm I'm going to discuss today, but I have no commercial interest related to this talk. So I'm going to start off today with a case. Uh, the case is probably a little bit different than some of the cases that you do in your clinical case conferences. So MC was a 38-year-old man with no significant past medical history who presented to his home computer. He recently made a New Year's resolution to get into better shape. And so he types in exercise equipment into a search engine. And immediately, millions of results come to him based on his search terms, his past searches, purchases, his demographics, et cetera, all using a real-time prediction algorithm. After browsing several sites, he decides he wants to buy an exercise bike. So he goes to Amazon. And again, based on his past purchases, his demographics, the search terms he uses, thousands of different options come to him based on a real-time prediction algorithm. After doing all this shopping, MC decides that, you know, he's had enough exercise for one day uh, and it's time to watch a movie. So he goes to Netflix and again, based on a real-time prediction algorithm, thousands of different movies options come to him based on the movie that he's liked previously and the likes of some other, of other people who've liked similar movies in the past. So I think we contrast what happens in our everyday private lives with what happens in the hospital. I think um, we're gonna um, notice that we're, we need to figure out better ways to use the data for our patients. So case two is patient DB, who is a 67 year old man admitted to um, our hospital several years ago with sepsis. On presentation, the patient had a, a low grade fever, but otherwise the vital signs are relatively stable. And so work was begun and they were admitted to the general ward. However, at 2 a.m., the patient had higher grade fever, lower blood pressure, and worsening of the patient's respiratory status. The nurse was concerned about the patient, so they called the intern, um, the intern uh, taking their nap in the middle of the night, uh, and having to review by hand vital signs, laboratory values, medications, notes, radiology reports, trends of all of these things over time, all by hand, manually, by themselves, on a patient they may not even know. Then we have to agree that there has to be a better way to use the data that we have that we're collecting every day for things like billing purposes and communication, but to actually use it to understand which patients might become critically ill in the hospital in order to better care for those patients. So that's what I'm going to focus on today. I'm going to focus on how can we first risk stratify patients and why is this important? Second, I'm going to discuss the current state of risk stratification in hospitals around the country today. I'm then going to go on to talk about how you can use data, patient level data, to develop prediction algorithms to identify which patients in the hospital are becoming critically ill and are deteriorating. Finally, I'm going to illustrate an example of real-time risk stratification in action. In other words, taking the models that you build and then actually applying them to the bedside. So first of all, why should we risk stratify patients? And, and you know, one way to think about it is how can you figure out if this is a patient who in a few minutes is gonna be walking and talking and sort of talking on their phone or somebody who you're gonna be sending to the ICU. So it turns out that most cases of in-hospital cardiac arrests that occur each year actually occur outside the ICU. 
So there, there's over 200,000 of cases of in-hospital cardiac arrest in the United States each year, and over half of those occur outside the intensive care unit. And despite decades and decades of research regarding, you know, what medications should we use or what songs should we have in our head when we're doing chest compressions, unfortunately, survival remains poor. So we really need to figure out how to identify these patients and potentially prevent these cardiac arrests from happening in the first place. And there's several lines of evidence that suggest that cardiac arrests in some cases may be preventable. For example, if you look at vital signs that occur hours before the event, abnormalities are common. For example, in the eight hours prior to a ward cardiac arrest that occurs in the hospital, about half of patients will have vital sign abnormalities. However, most importantly, if you look eight to 48 hours prior to the event, still about half of these patients have vital sign abnormalities. This suggests that in in-hospital cardiac arrest, these are not typically sudden events, and these patients are usually deteriorating in the course of over hours and sometimes even days before they have the, the cardiac arrest. In addition, if you look at the common causes of cardiac arrest, there are things like respiratory failure, cardiac ischemia, sepsis, conditions where we know that earlier interventions can improve outcomes. Furthermore, if you look at what happens around the time of cardiac arrest, unfortunately, medical errors are very common. For example, in a study by Hodgetts and colleagues where they used chart review to look at what happened prior to ward cardiac arrest, they found that things like delays in diagnoses and errors in diagnoses are very common. In addition, the resident house officer was often the most senior physician at the bedside for these patients making decisions. So we can improve risk stratification. We could potentially identify patients where we can send critical care expertise to the bedside with the hopes of decreasing some of these errors from happening. Now, in addition to cardiac arrest, luckily most of the patients are identified and then transferred to the intensive care unit before they suffer an arrest. However, our group and others have shown that Many patients, unfortunately, are identified too late and are actually have delays in getting to the ICU after starting to become critically ill. And we found that every hour of delay of getting a patient who becomes critically ill to the intensive care unit increases morbidity as well as mortality. Finally, another reason to risk stratify patients is identifying high-risk patients that could lead to goals of care discussions. For example, in this study by Vasquez and colleagues, they looked at deaths that occurred in their hospital system from prior to implementing a multidisciplinary clinician team of uh, rapid response team um, compared to deaths that occurred after implementation of the rapid response team, which is designed to identify and treat these high-risk patients. What they found was after implementing the rapid response team, more patients who died were dying under comfort care with lower pain scores and decreased subjective suffering. So by risk stratifying patients who are becoming critically ill, not only could we potentially prevent some, some deaths from happening, but we can also improve the end of life as well for some patients. Now these ideas and many others have led to the proliferation of rapid response team around, teams around the world. These are multidisciplinary teams of clinicians, often nurse-led, but sometimes physician-led, that are designed to help identify and then treat high-risk patients. And these are all over the United States, in the UK. Um, um, they're essentially mandated as well as in Australia and many other countries. So with this in mind, then how are we currently risk stratifying patients on the wards? Well, it turns out that typically it occurs something like this. So maybe our hair is not quite so perfect on morning rounds. Um, but it's a bunch of clinicians who are talking to each other about, hey, I think this patient's not looking so well this morning. Maybe we should uh, have the ICU come see them. Or maybe this patient's getting better, maybe they're ready to go home. But as we know, when these decisions that are, which are based on clinician experience and expertise, 
um, uh, unfortunately can vary from clinician to clinician and also as clinicians get overworked. And some patients unfortunately slip through the cracks uh, and, and, and suffer things like cardiac arrest or delays in ICU transfer. In addition, because of this, more objective tools have been created over the past two decades. For example, this is the MUSE, which is the most commonly used score in academic centers for rapid response team activation. And it's essentially you take different vital signs, you look at the values, and then you calculate a score for each vital sign and sum up that score. And typically, once the score is above some threshold, you then activate the rapid response team. However, these scores also were developed just using subjective opinion of individual providers and individual hospitals. And so there are many different versions of this. And unfortunately, they suffer from poor accuracy in many cases. In fact, this varying opinion has led to over 100 different variations of these early warning scores to risk stratify patients. So when you're in an individual hospital design, trying to figure out what system should you implement, it's sort of like you, 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 send the, you, you, know, this, you send this kid to the 7-Eleven to ask you to get a drink. There are so many different options, and it really doesn't matter which one you choose. In fact, if you look at the different accuracies of these different scores, shown here with the sensitivity for death along the y-axis, and a number of the different scores that were published previously indexed along the x-axis, you can see that the accuracy of these tools ranged widely. And if you think about how rapid response teams work, in order to get the team to the bedside, you actually have to recognize the patients who are deteriorating. So as scores that have low accuracy will essentially um, can, can cause problems with the entire system itself. And that is probably why when you look at studies um, and meta-analyses that have been done on rapid response teams, unfortunately, they have not shown improvements in important outcomes such as uh, mortality. So then how can we use data to develop prediction algorithms? Well, so one of the things we wanted to do is to develop a general prediction algorithm that would be generalizable to other hospitals. And so we aim to uh, develop a risk stratification tool that could predict which patients were, go were to go on and suffer a cardiac arrest, ICU transfer, or death on the wards. We combine that into one outcome based on uh, the, the literature I discussed earlier today. And we were funded through a large multi-center database, which allowed us to gain data from a large urban academic center, University of Chicago, as well as four North Shore suburban uh, teaching uh, and community non-teaching hospitals in, in Illinois. Again, we wanted the, this to be a generalizable model. So we started with a very simple set of predictor variables, things like age and vital signs, and then commonly collected labs, because again, we wanted something that would be generalizable. Our final study population was over 269,000 emissions, which was over 400 cardiac arrests on the wards, over 13,000 ICU transfers, and almost 3,000 deaths on the wards. As you can see by the patient demographics, there was a wide range in the patient's age, race, as well as the event rates across the different hospitals, which we're actually very happy to see because, again, we think this would improve the generalizability of our tool. When we looked at predicting in-hospital cardiac arrest in the data set with every individual variable, we actually found that respiratory rate was the most important predictor that we found in our data set. And in fact, vital signs in general are more predictive than any of the other variables that we looked at with age as well as uh, BUN and creatinine being other variables that were predictive. Our final score, which we called ECART because they call a Dr. CART overhead when a cardiac arrest occurs in the hospital. When we looked at a separate validation, independent holdout validation set, um, we found that the AUC, which is along the x-axis here with 0.5 being a coin flip and one being a perfect test, 
was significant had a significantly higher discrimination in higher AUC than um, uh, the Muse across every single outcome we looked at, as well as the combined outcome. In fact, when we looked at this holdout validation set in the, all five hospitals individually, it was more accurate across every single outcome within every single hospital. So what does that mean? It essentially means that by implementing eCart, you would have significant improvement in detection rates and also significant decrease in false alarms. And we all know with the alarm fatigue we have nowadays with all the alerts we get, this is, we could have a significant savings in terms of, um, uh, of provider fatigue. Now, one of the questions we had uh, after we finished the study was, you know, we found that respiratory rate was very, very important, um, actually the most important variable in the model. And so we asked the question, well, are these documented respiratory rates in the EHR actually real values? And so we partnered with a, um, with a company that had a pod device that could calculate respiratory rate. And we compared the respiratory rates from the pod device, which is real physiology, to the, the respiratory rates that are documented in the chart, which I'm not sure how it is at, at your hospital, but it seemed like it was always 18 or 20 in, in, in uh, our hospital. And in fact, that's actually what we saw. The manual respiratory rates put in by the clinicians, the nurses in the, in the medical record were basically 16, 18, or 20 almost all the time. Whereas from the pod respiratory rate, which is physiology, had more of like a flat and normal distribution, as you might expect. However, the next thing we did was to figure out which of these two is more predictive of deterioration. And we actually found that the manual respiratory rates, which again are typically 18 or 20, were significantly more predictive of deterioration than the real physiology. And so we hypothesized that these respiratory rates that are put in the electronic health record are kind of a combination of physiology a bit, but also clinician worry as well. If you walk in the room and the patient's on the phone, you're just gonna say 18 or 20. You walk in the room and you're worried, you're actually gonna count. And once you start putting in things like odd numbers or anything above 20, that suggests the patient's actually high risk. And so that's why moving forward, we continue to use the data that's in the, in the electronic health record, even though we know it may not be physiologically accurate, physiologically accurate because it is predictive. So there, then after doing this study then, um, there's several lines of additional research uh, that we wanted, uh, directions we wanted to go. Um, First, uh, in some of the work that we're working on with uh, um, uh, Dr. Afshar, uh, especially since he's come out here, are looking at things like using NLP and cl of clinical notes um, for prediction. But also there's many other things that are available in the EHR like orders and medications and diagnostic test results. However, what we wanted to do next was to actually look at things that are outside that individual patient and look in their environment and see if their environment may also play a role in increasing the risk of deterioration. And this came to us when thinking about what happens uh, in the real world when someone, when a car crashes. So for example, the Google self-driving car actually crashed into a bus a few years ago. And you can imagine if you're driving down the street and you see a car and there's like nobody driving in it and all of a sudden it just crashes into some bus. Everyone would probably start slowing down and turning their head and staring at me like, what in the world's going on? And that's what happens, you know, down the, when you're driving down the highway as well. And if you think about what happens clinically when a patient suffers a cardiac arrest on the ward or becomes critically ill, all of a sudden, everybody stops what they're doing. People who aren't even involved in the care will often walk by the room, poke their head and see what's going on. Sometimes they'll even come, you know, at least in the old days, they used to even come in and ask you, do you need help? What can I do? And if you, if you take all of those resources for that patient who's crashing, in addition to all the time it takes to resuscitate them, get them transferred to the ICU, document everything that happened, talk to the family, and then also talk to the team that's taking care of them, that's an enormous amount of resources for these patients who are deteriorating. And so the question is, what happens to all the other patients on that same ward at that same time? We hypothesize that maybe those patients would increase their risk of deteriorating as well. 
So if you look at a war, an, an individual ward or unit or whatever you'd like to call it, a medical surgical unit in the hospital that's not in the ICU, we essentially imagine um, that you have patients in there who are higher risk and some that are lower risk. Um, so what happens when one of them suffers a critical illness event like a cardiac arrest? Well, what we, what we found was that the odds of critical illness in other patients around that individual patient increased by 18% with one event over the next several hours. And when two recent events happened almost you know, side by side within a few hours of each other, the odds of critical illness of the surrounding patients increased by 51%. So to us, this suggested that when you have a patient who's high risk on a ward, once you're done treating them, the next thing you should do is sort of check on the other patients on that ward to make sure everyone's doing okay. And in fact, in other work, what we did was we looked at patients who were in these corner rooms at the end of the hallway and we actually found that these patients also have increase of, of mortality as well as length of stay, even after, again, adjusting for many things like time of day and day of week and how severely ill they are, et cetera, et cetera, They're, that also held up as another a risk for these patients. So where a patient is in the ward and on the unit and also what's going on with other patients are also things can increase your risk. And so if you're just looking at individual risk factors like their vital signs and labs, you're actually gonna miss a significant amount of the story for individual patients' risks of deterioration. The other area that we're very, we've been very interested in is this area of machine learning. So um, you know, we typically in medicine are using logistic regression and creating very simple models, but can we use modern machine learning methods to improve accuracy? And so if you think about what happens with Amazon or Netflix or even the United States Postal Service, they're all using machine learning to improve the care they provide to their customers because they know these modern machine learning methods can increase accuracy, even though in Chicago, I still never got my mail on time. Um, companies like uh, Google are also developing tools that will help you, you know, you can, you can essentially beat us in games like Go and, 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 and chess and also developing apps that can identify who's who in different pictures. And they're all using machine learning. And so machine learning really is just the computer science field focused on learning from data. So it includes things like linear logistic regression. So if you've used linear logistic regression before, you've technically used machine learning. Um, but it also includes things like decision trees, neural networks, and support vector machines, and many other more esoteric methods as well. So what we wanted to do with them was to compare what we usually use in logistic regression in medicine, which is logistic regression with these linear terms to these more modern machine learning methods in the same multi-center data set I just spoke about a few minutes ago to see if it can, just by changing the algorithm, can we improve how we, uh, the accuracy of prediction of deterioration. And in fact, what we found was that the more modern machine learning methods had significantly higher accuracy than things like logistic regression. For example, the models like the random forest um, uh, were much more accurate. Again, looking at AUC here, uh, with 0.5 being a, a coin flip, uh, you can see significantly improved accuracy and discrimination by the AUC just by changing the algorithm that you use. Um, we've also uh, recently then validated these, these models as well in COVID. So um, a, a tree-based model similar to random forest, uh, which is called a gradient boosted machine, we've been, we, net, we recently used to improve our eCart score by adding things like trends as well as this uh, more modern algorithm. And you can see here in this, this what we're calling the, v, the V4, the version four, for predicting any deterioration in COVID patients as well as predicting mechanical ventilation. It had much higher discrimination than other scores, such as the, the NEWS, the MUSE, um, or QSOPA, or also some ED scores um, like REMS. 
So again, by just changing the algorithm, you can significantly improve your risk, your risk stratification um, of hospitalized patients. So just briefly, you know, you're going to see more and more of these studies in critical care medicine around, um, and also pulmonary medicine around what, you know, random forests and some of these more advanced methods. So what are random forests? Well, random forests are based on these simple decision trees. For example, it might, it looks at your data and identifies what are the best ways to split those who have the event versus those who don't have the outcome of interest. Here, for example, again, respiratory rate being the most important predictor, this decision tree says if respiratory rate is greater than, greater than 20, if it's not, then you're just going to predict that you're going to survive. If it is greater than 20, it's going to then look at your age, and then it's going to then have predictions for who's going to survive or not. Um, so random forests are essentially a combination of hundreds and sometimes thousands of these individual decision trees. And one of the challenges of the more complex methods is it's harder to understand what's going on in them because you can't just, you know, output an equation. Um, however, you can visualize things like variable importance. And as you can see here, with var the variable importance of the different variables, it looks very similar to what we saw with the logistic regression model, with respiratory rate being the most important variable in the model, followed by heart rate. In addition, you can look at the individual variables and see how risk, as shown here on the y-axis of deterioration, changes with respect to the different uh, values of respiratory rate. And just as you might expect, if you're not breathing or you're breathing uh, much above 20, your risk goes way up for um, deterioration. You can also do this for age as well. And unfortunately, what we found was that no matter how you model it, turning 40 really is bad news. But these plots and these methods of doing explainable machine learning can actually improve the face validity of these models and actually increase then the trust that clinicians have when you say, hey, I'm going to you know, implement this you know, 2,000 tree random forest model with 500 predictors to detect deterioration. And you're like, and they're like what in the world does that mean? And you're like, oh, well, let me show you. Uh, and it actually can improve trust um, and when you're trying to implement these tools. Now, some of the uh, methods I have been talking about, though, are, are so 2010. Um, and, and, you know, really the hot new thing that everyone's talking about is this area um, called deep learning. And so uh, one of the questions we had is, you know, can we, you know, can deep learning be used um, to even improve these algorithms even further? And deep learning is uh, essentially um, these combinations of neural networks that are that can learn complex patterns like voice recognition and, and picture recognition. In these models, what they do is, for example, we can take in an image like this in pixel, all the pixels from this image here, and layer by layer, it essentially learns things like first maybe learns the edges, and then it combines those edges into shapes, and then it finally combines those shapes into actual um, parts of cars. And at the end, it actually then outputs the prediction. For example, here's the Audi, Audi A7. Now, these breakthroughs really have come in the area of um, computer vision, as well as audio recognition and, and also natural language processing. However, when you think about um, a lot of the data I've been talking about, like vital signs in labs, those don't come in the form of pictures. And so what we ended up doing was we took um, in all those variables, including some additional um, discrete variables in the structured data, like what medications they were receiving. And then on the other axis, on the x-axis, we then took time since submission along the x-axis. And all you need to do then is just normalize these data, and then these now look like pictures to the algorithm. And so what we did then was we fed this picture into some of the most complex and advanced um, um, computer vision algorithms, to see could they actually then predict who, for example, might die in the hospital over the next few days. 
So in this study, then what we did was we took, pay, we took all of the HR data, the structured data with the visualization, as I mentioned, 70% of the data was used for uh, derivation. And we actually then outputted something called GRADCAM, which essentially will tell you what part of the picture was most important when the model was making that prediction. And then in the validation, we compared a number of different uh, deep learning algorithms, including convolutional neural networks, recurrent neural networks, and others. Um, also compared it to the Muse, SOFA, and other scores. And the goal here is we took the first 48 hours of data, and then we looked to predict whether the patient was going to die in the hospital. The deaths were occurring on a median of about seven days after admission. So we're essentially trying to say, taking these data, can we predict who's going to die in the hospital five days from now? And what we found was these deep learning models were, were highly accurate. So here, looking at AUC for discrimination, again, you can see that um, sort of low accuracy for SOFA, moderate for MUSE, and an AUC of 0.91, again, for predicting mortality that was going to occur many days after. Um, so near perfect prediction with these deep learning algorithms. So again, this again suggests that if you just uh, change the algorithm to something that's more advanced, you can actually continue to prove accuracy. And again, you can also, as I mentioned before, highlight the areas of the model that, that were um, where the models most focused on and were most important for making that individual prediction. So the other area that we've now moved into then is, uh, you know, all of it, all everything I've discussed so far is predicting of all patients, medical, surgical, you know, whatever their underlying conditions are, reasons are for deteriorating, who's going to deteriorate. And the next step now is to then ask, why are they deteriorating? Because that then can lead to, okay, so what can I do then to prevent them from, from having uh, potentially preventable mortality? And so what we did was first was we did uh, about a thousand charts uh, where we reviewed all the high-risk patients, um, uh, a randomly selected high-risk patient group. And what we found was um, that there's actually quite a number of different conditions that cause clinical deterioration, but we found that sepsis was number one. So after seeing that sepsis is the most common cause of deterioration, the next thing we want to do is say, okay, what can we do in sepsis? Can we develop, how are our models working for those patients? And can we actually figure out who's truly septic? So I think as many of you know, sepsis is defined, uh, redefined a few years ago as life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. And so really sepsis then can be thought of as the combination of being critically ill as well as infected. And so in my mind, in the mind of our lab, uh, sepsis is really then two different prediction problems. You want to identify who's going to become critically ill, and we already saw that things like respiratory rate are going to be the best predictors of that. And then you also want to identify who's infected. And for infection, things like temperature and, and white blood cell count are probably going to be more the, more the important prediction um, things. And you may do different things depending on if it's just deterioration versus if somebody might be infected. And so the first part of this then is seeing, are the tools we have available actually already risk stratifying infected patients? And so we probably, I think most of us probably know or have heard of the QSOFA score. Um, so again, hypotension, altered mental status, and tachypnea. It was developed based on a large data set of patients with suspected infection. Um, and so there's now been many studies comparing the original um, criteria for sepsis, the SERS criteria versus QSOFA, for determining who's going to die in the hospital or who's going to develop deterioration. And the overall summary is if you look at the SERS criteria, the SERS criteria outside the ICU are very sensitive for identifying who is going to um, uh, develop deterioration or die in the hospital. Unfortunately, it has very low sensitivity or specificity, sorry. Um, so I probably have SERS right now or pretty close to it. 
Uh, I think after walking up a flight of stairs or you know, presenting on rounds after walking a flight of stairs, probably a lot of us are going to get SIRS. Um, and so it's very nonspecific. However, if you look at QSOFA, the sensitivity is much lower, but it is more specific. So which of these you use and sort of how you use them in your algorithms is really going to, in sort of your, your workflows for sepsis is really going to depend on, do you want a high sensitivity test or do you want a high specificity test? But I think a lot of the earlier literature really um, ignored the fact that we already have these early warning scores, like the MUSE score and the NEWS score already out there. And so do we really need another early warning score that's only for sepsis patients? And what we found actually was when we looked at, um, for example, in the subgroup of patients with suspected infection, so those who had uh, culture orders and antibiotics provided, we found that the area under the curve actually was very similar for our ECART score, as well as for the MUSE for predicting deterioration amongst the infected patients as well. And actually both of these scores, as well as the new score, were significantly more accurate than QSOFA as well as SIRS. So if you're already using something like ECART or something like the MUSE score for predicting deterioration in all patients, you're not gonna get any improvement in accuracy by switching to QSOFA for just a subset of infected patients. In fact, you should continue to use what you're already using because it'll actually probably do quite well. Now, an important um, uh, side note, of course, is who's actually infected, right? I mean, if you look in the hospital, probably half of our, a quarter to half of our patients are, are, are on antibiotics, but which of these patients are actually truly infected? Um, there's been actually very little work done on this in terms of using EHR data to predict who's infected. In fact, one of the only studies was a study done 17 years ago now in the ICU um, uh, by Jean-Louis Vincent and colleagues where they um, developed something called the IPS score, which is essentially a combination of these vital signs here as well as CRP. And you actually have to calculate the entire SOFA score within here. And I'll, I'll, I would, I would, uh, um, I, I'd love to quiz the audience if, who can actually remember all the components and thresholds for SOFA, because I can't. Um, so, so this is not a score that people have typically used. Um, and so what we wanted to do then was to use similar approach that we used for our original eCart score to see if machine learning can actually identify who's infected in the hospital. So as part of my uh, R01, we've actually now completed, uh, and also uh, in collaboration with Dr. Afshar, we've now completed 4,000 manual chart reviews of patients who were potentially infected to identify who was actually truly infected. And in fact, our Kappa scores, our agreement with these chart reviews were very, very high, suggesting that we were actually able to figure out at the end of the day after all the dust settled who was infected. So with this grant, we have EHR data from 2 million admissions in seven hospitals. Um, and so uh, ultimately we're gonna be using all those data, which we're actually working on now, but we did present at ATS um, uh, last year, a pilot study in the emergency room using just a thousand of those patients. And what we found was um, by using the, so we used data from the first four hours uh, for predicting who's infected on a mission. And you can see again, the AUC for this random forest algorithm in a separate holdout set was significantly higher than SIRS as well as the IPS score. So again, by you, and this is again, a very small sample. And so the accuracy will continue to improve as we get larger and larger data sets for this through the additional chart reviews that we've completed. So again, this suggests that we, we can potentially identify who's infected early on in their hospital stay. Um, in addition, if you looked at who got antibiotics, a significant number of the patients that the algorithm identified as infected had not yet received their antibiotics. So again, this suggests that this algorithm could be used to identify potentially high-risk patients who've not yet received antibiotics, but also low-risk patients who may not actually need antibiotics as well. 
So finally, I want to end the talk today by talking about how can we uh, implement these tools in real time? Can we actually implement machine learning algorithms and can we actually improve patient outcomes, which is obviously the most important part of all of this. So after developing our eCard score, one of the things we wanted to do um, was since our prior work was using retrospective data only, we wanted to test the feasibility of calculating our eCard score in real time and also compare it to what was going on in current practice with our rapid response team. So over a study period of a little over a year on one medicine and two hemonchi units, we compared the accuracy and timing of our e-card alerts to what was going on with current practice with our rapid response team. Again, looking at the same outcomes, work cardiac arrest and ICU transfer. We a priori categorized our e-card score based on what we were planning to do in a future prospective study um, in terms of who would be high risk, who would get an automatic uh, page to the rapid response team, as well as who would be intermediate risk, who would get proactive rounding. We then calculated the score by taking real-time data from our EHR vendor um, and the lab values and location data. eCART was calculated, but it was actually not, not used for any clinical practice. So this is a silent implementation. It was not used to make any clinical decisions. So if you look at the outcomes identified by our rapid response team, we found that um, unfortunately only 10% of the cardiac arrests that occurred on the wards were identified by the rapid response team and only about a third of the ICU transfers. However, if you look at what our eCard score would have identified at the highest risk threshold, which would, which would have triggered a rap, automatic uh, rapid response team call, it would have identified 80% of the cardiac arrests and half of the ICU transfers. And if you add on those group of patients who would likely have been seen through proactive rounding, our score would have detected all of the patients who suffered a cardiac arrest prior to the event, as well as two-thirds of those who ended up going to the ICU. This is a dramatic improvement in accuracy, and we're very excited to see this. But in addition, um, the timing of when you identify these patients is also important. You need enough lead time to actually be able to do something to prevent the events from uh, happening. And so if you look at the hours before the event, with time zero on your right being the time of cardiac arrest or ICU transfer, and the percent of events that were identified here along the y-axis, what we found was that unfortunately our rapid response team was getting to these patients an hour before they did their deterioration event. So they basically walk in, they help put on you know, high levels of oxygen, and then they help transport the patient to the ICU. That's it. They can't actually prevent these patients from deteriorating when they're deteriorating already when they get there. However, our eCard score at the highest risk threshold actually was identifying these patients a median of 30 hours earlier than the rapid response team. And so if you think about how long it takes to sort of go see a patient, send a bunch of diagnostic tests, start a bunch of new treatments, and have some time for those treatments to actually work, like switching the antibiotics to you know, add vancomycin because the patient is at risk for MRSA or something else like that, the fact that we had that significant lead time to us, we are very happy to see that because that gives you plenty of time to do the diagnostic tests and provide the treatments to actually prevent potentially decrease preventable death. So we've now implemented eCart Live. It's now actually running in over 20 hospitals around the country. Um, our highest risk patients in many hospitals are getting automatic rapid response team calls or sometimes they're also just showing up as high risk on your, on your patient flow sheets. Um, intermediate, intermediate risk patients getting proactive rounding. And then the lowest risk patients were continuing present care, although in some, patient, some hospitals, and we actually just finished a randomized controlled trial where we let these low risk patients sleep at night. And as you might imagine, patients loved the fact that they did not have to be woken up every few hours for vital signs and pokes for labs and all of that in the middle of the night. 
and it was completely safe. Um, so we were very excited to see that not only can you use the score at the very high end, but also on the low end of the score as well. We partnered with a company that has essentially allowed us to embed in Epic a graphical user interface where you can look at an individual and see their risk scores change over time and those trends over time. You can also see the different vital signs and labs that are, are part of the score and which ones are driving the score. So you no longer have to do 20 clicks to find all the different variables that you want to look for, but you can actually have everything on here and actually as you scroll along the top, you can actually see how these vital signs and scores and everything else are changing. In addition, we have recommended pathways, which we've developed in concert with clinical, the clinical experts. And these clinical pathways are, again, embedded directly in the EHR. And so that you can um, do things like recommending things like frequent reassessment, sepsis screens. So many of the hospitals are now using this as part of their sepsis screen. Um, and also you can um, one-click order directly from the workflow actions, such as um, ordering a more frequent reassessments, activating the rapid response team, consulting critical care, or ordering lactates. So now everything is directly in your workflow. And, and, and in fact, because it's in the workflow, if we look at utilization of these pathways, we've actually found that they are very high. So utilization for the highest risk patients is approaching 100%. And the reason I think that that is, is because it, we're making it so easy. It's actually much easier to see everything right in front of you as opposed and, and have all the orders in front of you in the pathways as opposed to having to click all these different places. And so with the fact that now we have high utilization, we've now shown that, for example, at University of Chicago, we decreased cardiac arrest rates over by over 50% since we implemented eCart. In addition, um, the Alexa brothers, which is our, our community hospitals um, uh, in uh, um, Illinois, uh, they presented this to the International Rapid Response Team Conference. And when you look at the before and after periods for implementing eCart, they found that even though their case mix went up uh, slightly, the number of cardiac arrests also went down by greater than 50% as well. In addition, um, those patients had a significant decrease in length of stay. Um, and so although the transfer rate of these patients into the ICU stayed the same statistically, um, those patients were getting the ICU earlier with less organ failures, and they were able to get out of the ICU then a lot quicker, which significantly improved cost savings. Um, furthermore, we've implemented this in four, four additional Midwest hospitals. Um, and one of the things we wanted to do here was to look at what happens before, uh, this is sepsis mortality before implementing the score, compared to just showing them the score, and then finally showing them the score, but also having those recommended pathways um, in one-click ordering within the pathways. And as you can see, the greatest mortality decrease was actually by having the full implementation with a final 35% decrease in overall sepsis mortality from the baseline. Um, importantly, the overall mortality in that entire ward also decreased by about 26% um, from pre to post. So this wasn't just that they're identifying more sepsis patients earlier, but it was in fact they were actually decreasing mortality for all patients who are on the or, or on those wards. Finally, in work that's currently under review, um, we implemented this at the four North Shore hospitals that I mentioned earlier that helped us develop our score. And you can see from the um, after adjustment for factors that changed over that may have changed over time. Again, we saw the significant decrease in overall mortality. Uh, mortality in both the very highest risk patients, that red group, as well as mortality decreases in the yellow group as well, with a number needed to treat to prevent one death of 20 patients. So again, the, to me, this was so exciting to see the fact that, you know, it's actually, it's getting easier and easier to develop these algorithms, but to actually develop algorithms 
they go to clinicians, the clinicians actually then want to use, and then finally seeing mortality benefits was very exciting for us to see now across several different health systems and, and, and uh, several different hospitals. So I just wanna end then my talk by uh, uh, finishing with one more case. Um, patient RD was a 35-year-old female presented to the emergency room with no shortness of breath. Symptom onset was sudden and it was associated with sharp chest pain. The patient was otherwise healthy without any medical problems. So I don't know if you have any pulmonary fellows over there. I'm not, maybe I won't uh, pimp anybody. Um, uh, but I think uh, hopefully all of you can see the patient had a significant pneumothorax there on the right. Um, and so the chest tube was placed, significant relief of shortness of breath. Um, the primary team then a few days later clamped the chest tube. Um, however, unfortunately, sooner symptoms recurred. You can see the respiratory rate is now well above 20, uh, so you should be worried. Um, the blood pressure is also dropping, heart rate's going up, and the oxygen saturation is also dropping. 15 minutes later, um, and I think you can all imagine what could be happening in 15 minutes, right? We could definitely be rushing in, maybe even doing chest compressions, maybe getting this patient to the ICU, but something bad could definitely happen over the next uh, few, in several minutes for this patient. However, on the same exact day, and again, this is at University of Chicago, eCart was turned on for the very first time. The rapid response team received a page for their very first high-risk patient, and it actually was this 35-year-old female with pneumothorax with the recurrent shortness of breath. They arrived at the bedside, and these are critical care trained nurses. And so they walked in their room, they knew exactly what to do. They put the chest tube uh, uh, back up to wall suction. The patient's symptoms resolved very quickly. They finally got a hold of the primary team and were like, you know, why aren't we answering your pages? Um, and this patient finally then went home a few days later. So to me, this really, you know, hit on because I think that, you know, I think we do the best we can. We do, I think, a really good job for the vast majority of the patients. But unfortunately, every once in a while, patients can slip through the cracks despite our best efforts. And so, you know, I really think that the future of hospital risk stratification is not going to be these exhausted trainees trying to figure out and go through all of these data by hand by themselves, but it's going to be them in essentially with a complementary algorithm that can help them sort of their, in their own mind prioritize who are the patients should they be seeing first? Should I be running to this room or can I do these five other things first before I go to see this patient? These algorithms then can be used to identify patients for rapid response team act activation. They can provi be provided to, to the bedside clinicians, nurses, physicians, um, and also be used in the setting of a learning health system where you continue to learn what are the patients the algorithm's missing? What can we do to improve the workflows or the ability of it to actually identify more patients to prevent more harm from happening? So I really think this is gonna be the future of what we do at the in the hospital by combining machine learning with clinicians um, working in partnership. So I acknowledge uh, all the uh, great collaborators, um, uh, um, both at University of Chicago here in Wisconsin and the many other centers. Um, and uh, thank you all for your attention. Uh, my email is there at the bottom. I'm happy to talk with anyone. Um, uh, feel free to shoot me an email. I love this talk. It's so interesting to me. And, and every slide, I just thought to myself more and more about the patient who comes to us in the, in the medical ICU who's essentially dead when they arrive here and you think to yourself like they could not have gotten this sick just like five minutes ago and if that you could only just pay more attention to the trends in their vitals or the trends in their serum bicarb or something how much lead time would we have had to actually prevent what has happened here and oftentimes I sit and go through with the, the residents and the fellows like look you can see their heart rate is not showing up in red on our vital sheet 
but it was 60. And then the last two days it's been 80, something obviously happened, um, but we kind of overlook it, I think, because we're just so inundated with data all the time. And so it's hard for us, I think, to sort out what matters. And if, if data isn't kind of outside of the normal trend, it kind of just slips through the cracks in some ways. So I think it's so cool that, you know, you have a 30 hour or something lead time with this um, compared to the prior, uh, the prior system that you had. Because certainly that that is you know thirty additional hours is actually meaningful. It's actually clinically meaningful, you know. Yeah, you know, I, I think also as clinicians, we also sometimes I think there's a lot of different things going on, right? One is all the inundation of data, and then the ability to like, can you really incorporate a hundred different data points plus trends and all these data points over time and all of that with when you're taking doing all these different things for all these different patients plus everything else going on in your life. Um, in addition, I think there's also we sometimes have this. Um, uh, tendency to kind of explain away things. Oh, it's 80, but you know, the patient just got up with physical therapy, right? There's always, or they just went to the bathroom. Maybe that's, maybe that's what it is. And right. it's somebody, somebody once told me the story. It's sort of like, like, how do you boil a frog? Uh, and you know, if you like, if you all of a sudden the water is, is like super hot and you put it in there, it'll like jump out. But if you sort of slowly turn it up, it actually doesn't know what's happening until, you know, it's too late. Sorry. I don't want to, this a little morbid, but I do think though that, um, the ones that crash quickly are easy to identify. Yeah. But I think the ones that deteriorate slowly over hours and sometimes even days, it's sort of like every day you're like, oh, you know, the creatinine's going up, but it's not a big deal. You know, yeah. they, they you know, didn't drink enough yesterday or we gave them a little Lasix or something. And then eventually all of a sudden you're like, how did we get to the ICU in the room uh, asking, calling anesthesia overhead uh, when the patient looked fine two days ago? Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to ask you Kieran's question here in a second, but I was talking to one of my colleagues while you were talking and, and he was saying, what's the buy-in from the hospital? Meaning like, do the um, medicine services, do they ever feel, they ever have pushback or resistance or even are they offended by these sort of auto consults that are now happening to rapid response and critical care providers um, where you're kind of sweeping in and changing management? Right. Yeah. So I think that's a really good question. And so, you know, one of the things that we found to be really important with our system in terms of its success is really buy-in and culture change. And so, um, so again, you know, we're, we're now in, you know, well over 20 hospitals and each hospital works that has sort of a different culture and different workflows. And so what we typically do is sort of under, go to the hospital, understand what are their typical workflows, what is their culture like, and, and, and all of those things. And then figure out at what point in the workflow of the clinicians is it best to have this information and then in what form should this information be. Because there are some hospitals where the rapid response team is like, hey, we're, no one's calling us. We need a system to allow us to go to the right patients at the right time. No one's calling us. So if a machine calls us, hey, that's a call. I'm not yeah. sitting there just putting an IVs on the floor all day. I'm seeing the patients I want to see. And that's great. And then there are other hospitals where, you know, all they want is a list of like, who's the sickest and who's the least sick. And they can just start at the top and kind of go down and see the patients when they want to. And the clinicians, when they open up their, their list of their patients, they can say, oh, we have three patients on our list that are now red. Uh, maybe I should see them first on rounds and figure out what changed from yesterday. And so the goal here is not to force anything on anyone, but their goal is really to improve the systems that are already in place. And I think by doing doing it that way that's why we're seeing such a high rate of utilization i mean we're seeing again above 90 percent utilization if you compare that to what you you know what how many times do you dismiss your bpas right 
you know, I mean, probably 90%, probably more than that, right? Not you personally, but, you know, maybe somebody else, maybe me. All right, well, you got, you got a whole bunch of questions that came in here while I was talking. So Kieran, who's a second-year critical care fellow, says, did you find an increased need for rapid response staffing after you implemented this? Yeah, so that's varied from hospital to hospital. So at the University of Chicago, where, where we first started, um, you know, we, we identified quite a number of patients who would benefit from rapid response team activation who were not being seen. And, um, the, and we didn't really have a dedicated rapid response team, uh, you know, um, sort of fully staffed in place at that time. So we actually did end up hiring additional rapid response team staff um, in order to uh, essentially get to the patients that needed to be seen because we also split where we had patients in two different hospitals that were like a 10 minute walk from each other. So there were a lot of reasons to sort of have additional staffing. So at some hospitals, you're increasing staffing and other hospitals, most of the hospitals, you're not. You're basically just getting the staffing that's already there to the right patients, as opposed to having that staffing either doing nothing or putting in IVs or doing other things that they're well, you know, essentially overqualified to do. And so um, most of the hospitals were not increasing staffing. We're just getting the information to the right people at the right time. Stella says, have you actually been able to assess whether people change their management based on the e-card score? So yes, yes, we have. Um, so in the study that we have under review, for example, um, after implementing the e-card score, there was significantly increasing uh, assessments of those high-risk patients. There's increasing um, uh, lactate orderings for them to have sort of further improve the risk stratification. Um, in addition, uh, in general, we're seeing a few more of these patients going to the ICU, not a significant amount, but they're going to the ICU earlier than they otherwise would have, with, then they're getting out of the ICU sooner. Um, so uh, it's likely a combination of things. We are going to start, we're doing more of a detailed dive into, you know, sepsis, for example, to see if patients are getting antibiotics earlier or fluid bolses earlier, and that's work that's ongoing. Um, but we are, those sort of outcome changes are directly related to um, critical care interventions or other supportive interventions that are occurring that were measurable. Awesome. Um, Nick says the data on efficacy of uh, rapid response teams is not overly compelling. Should rapid response teams be the target of early warning, primary teams, or somebody else? Yeah, so I agree um, that it's not overly compelling. Uh, and, you know, so I think that it's not clear in the literature to date when, if you have an early warning score, who is it best to give that information to, right? So, um, and so, because no one's done a randomized control trial that's large multi-center of giving it to rapid response teams versus the bedside nurse versus the primary team. Um, what we do know and what our data does show is that if you just sort of pop up a score, but you don't make any recommendations at all about what to do with it, that just showing a score to the bedside nurse, for example, actually there was a randomized control trial that did this, it actually showed no benefit. Um, and so, you know, in my mind, uh, and I think our team's mind, um, when the score is elevated, we should be prompting action and we should be recommending action. And so in each hospital, the right group to do those actions will differ. So if a hospital has a well-staffed rapid response team that, that can see these patients, then we ultimately, they are sort of the, one of the primary users of this information to sort of see the high risk, high risk patients. In hospitals where there's not a rapid response team, um, and, and, and also really in all hospitals, they're still seeing that information on the patient's uh, chart. So if you open up your patient list, 
it will be another column in that list that says what is their current risk score. So I think the jury's still out in terms of exactly who should be seeing it, but I think by working within the workflow and the resources of an individual hospital, I think that's probably the place to start. Um, Carl says, what happens as the machine learning progressively reduces the risk of mortality from some conditions? Will it stop alerting that the patient is at risk? Yeah, so um, and, and I think that is uh, somewhat related to the concept of model updating, um, right? If you, as you're decreasing these mortality, if you sort of then feed that data into your model, will it start saying that like no one's high risk anymore? Um, so uh, what we've done historically is we take all the data up until the time we start our eCard intervention or something similar, and then use that for the model development. And we actually have not been updating our model. And so essentially everyone who sort of was, was previously called high risk, they'll continue to be called high risk in the future, even if later that patient does not suffer the outcome. The reason we're doing that is um, if we started including these new patients, you're exactly right, um, where you may then all of a sudden find the models not predicting anyone's high risk. But the, the, challenge, the problem is um, those are deaths that were prevented because of the intervention. So then it's possible that then the only patients you're going to start alerting on, if you do update your score, will be the non-preventable deaths. And so that's why we actually, now that we're seeing all these decreases in mortality across hospital system after hospital system, we're actually saying, hey, our, our model's good. We're not, going to, we're not going to mess with our model um, because we're actually identifying at least some of the potentially preventable deaths. And we don't want to update our model to the people who are still dying because those may not be preventable. Interesting. All right, the last question so far that we have here is uh, David Gordon, who says, it seems to me that the most predictive part of the score is the respiratory rate, which seems to be a surrogate for Gestalt. What's the difference between that and just asking Gestalt? <laughs> yeah, so that, yeah, that's another great question. Um, so we actually did, um, uh, we actually did compare um, clinician Gestalt uh, to um, the MUSE score uh, in a study where we collaborated with Northwestern. Uh, it was led by Donna Edelson um, who at University of Chicago. Uh, and we actually found that clinical gestalt and uh, the MUSE score had very similar accuracy. Um, and so the clinical gestalt was not like some like dramatic, you know, like machine learning model type accuracy. It's sort of fair accuracy. And when you combine the two of them together, they actually did better than either of them alone. So essentially sort of the, the vital signs were getting something, the gestalt was getting something else and they sort of together were be even better. So the, one of the things we're doing for all of our high-risk patients, we are actually are asking about the nurse's concern and the, clinicians con the physician's concern about their likelihood of deterioration. So we're actually collecting those data now um, so that we can see if, uh, you know, how, how does that play a role and can, can you even get better accuracy of your overall score if you add that sort of worry score onto the, the machine learning model. So I think the data is there. It's the most predictive variable. So we're going to continue to use it because we know it's accurate. But we are trying to find ways of adding in clinical gestalt onto the model to see if we can continue to further drive the score accuracy up. Awesome. This is really fascinating. I would love to have a, a model like this in our institution. I would love to um, be able to notify the floor and the, anyone else who would read the doc halo messages that their patients were kind of at risk for deterioration. I would even be happy to be part of a team that kind of went to the bedside because I, I do think that there is a period of time that you can intervene and we're just overlooking that um, for so many reasons. So I think this is really, really fascinating. I'm very happy that you were able to join us today. Um, 
if there's no other questions, we'll go ahead and end the session. But thanks, Matt. It's been really, really nice meeting you. Super happy to have you here today. Um, you know, really nice to hear about your work. Great. Thanks again for the invitation. And thanks, everyone, for all your great questions. And uh, thanks, everyone, for coming. Yeah.